good to be together. It's fun to have our Easter uh, backdrop with us again. Every uh, Christians uh, started gathering on Sunday mornings. They had been Jewish all, and so gather on the Sabbath, Friday evening to Saturday evening, uh, until Jesus was resurrected, and then Christians began to gather on Sunday mornings as well. So every Sunday morning is a little Easter for us, so uh, fine and good to have our Easter uh, celebration continuing. As Gladys uh, said, we are going to do this thing that we did a few uh, years ago before COVID a couple of times called Frequently Asked Questions, and some of the questions that uh, have been asked thus far are not frequently asked and so are kind of more infrequently asked, but we're going to deal with those uh, this morning anyway. Uh, Mark began his gospel with this line, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you remember that? And Jesus was uh, carpenter, Nazarene, Messiah, son of God, but he was also rabbi, we learned over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And so he fielded questions on a regular basis. Uh, Here are some of the questions that he was asked along the way in the Gospels. Uh, From a rich young ruler, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mark uh, chapter 10. By some chief priests and elders, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority, Jesus? Chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. By an expert in religious law, who is my neighbor? In response to Jesus' teaching about loving one's neighbors. Uh, By Jesus' disciples, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or what makes a person great? By a Samaritan woman at a well in John's gospel, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a a drink of water since I'm a Samaritan woman? You have nothing to draw water with. Where do you think you're going to get this living water? By Pontius Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? By Pontius Pilate again, what is truth? By Jesus' disciples, tell us when will these things be? Uh, Chapter 13 of Mark, and what will be the sign of all these things that they will be fulfilled? And then in the beginning of the book of Acts, Lord, is it at this time you are going to restore your kingdom? So people were curious, people had lots of questions for Jesus, people wanted to know over the next half hour, and then uh, during the hour beginning at 11 over in the lighthouse, uh, we're going to talk about some of these questions and do uh, my best to answer some of them. In the lighthouse, if you want to come for that bonus session, we'll have a lot more opportunity for interaction, for going deeper, for going further, and for actual dialogue more than what this will be, monologue. Some of you have uh, just this morning sent in a few questions. We'll get to what we can. If you'd like to, between now and the next few minutes, submit a question, you can do so uh, with that card and the pew rack in front of you and give those to the ushers in the back and they'll sort through them and pass them up. Or you can use the QR code, as Christy said a little bit ago. So I thought uh, initially that I would do these in the order in which they came, but now it seems more prudent to do them in a little bit different way. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb uh, and uh, deal with, try to deal with some of the harder questions maybe up front. Uh, our goal in asking questions is to see authentic and um, well-grounded faith developed, not to encourage skepticism or doubt, but rather to help people in the process of developing rich faith in the Lord Jesus. In our confirmation class process, as well as in our membership process, we look for people to produce or write in the end a statement of faith. This is what I believe. And we haven't historically encouraged the asking of questions, 
but we do want to foster and cultivate curiosity and inquiry and knowing not against what the church has believed or what statements of faith have declared, but so that we might dig deeper and have authentic faith that lasts. There are no dumb questions, no bad questions, so you can ask anything, and some of you have. Uh, we're interested, again, in encouraging uh, faith and getting to truth. Uh, we want to be on that side. So as we, uh, before we begin, let me pray one more time. Pray with me. God, we ask that you would lead us into truth. We ask that you would humble us, uh, help us to be open-minded to the things uh, that might be new for us. Help us to let go of our tight grasp necessarily of uh, things we have believed and be open to wonder and open to your word and open to rethinking some things. Uh, help us, God, to uh, desire you by your grace. Uh, help us to want to lean into you and your way and your reality, your kingdom and your truth. Uh, take from us fear and save us from anxiety. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question, this was the first question that came to me a couple of days ago. Dinosaurs, did they exist? And I think we're going to pop some of these up on the screen. There you go. Dinosaurs, did they exist? If so, what happened to them? And so um, maybe different answers and different, uh, different people are going to answer this question and lots of these questions differently. I'm going to do my best, and some of this is my perspective, uh, and you don't necessarily have to agree with it, nor does the church necessarily have to agree with it. I believe dinosaurs existed. I also believe there are some animals that coexisted with dinosaurs that still exist, among them sea turtles, duckbill platypuses, crocodiles, snakes, bees, sharks, horseshoe crabs, lobsters, and others. My understanding is that the dinosaurs became extinct roughly 66 million years ago. Was I here for that? Absolutely not. Do I know that as fact? Absolutely not. Just going on what I've read. Uh, so dinosaurs were, dinosaurs existed, dinosaurs have not existed for a long time. Uh, but they still were. My understanding is that they ceased to exist maybe uh, because of an asteroid hitting the earth, creating climate change and disrupting their environment and their food sources. Uh, yeah, or, or maybe some other reason, but clearly they're not with us now. They're not in the San uh, Francisco Zoo or the Oakland Zoo. Uh, but question under the question, I think might have been, why are dinosaurs not mentioned in the Bible? For example, Noah's Ark. If dinosaurs did live millions of years ago, doesn't such a position or belief contradict or invalidate the timelines associated with the Bible for creation and what we read about creation in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, thus indicating maybe that the Bible is not a historically reliable or otherwise reliable source of information and truth? This might be the question underneath the question that was written in and asked. If so, I would uh, say a couple of things in the way of biblical exegesis or understanding the Bible. And you don't have to agree with this. When scholars look at the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, it's clearly divided into two very distinct sections, two very different genres of literature, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. They are very different if you pay attention and notice. 
and 1, chapter 1 through 11, may be a different kind of history, what scholars call prehistory or Israel's prehistory, and may serve a different function than chapters 12 through 50. And that may scare some of us, but it's okay. So, two creation accounts in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and chapter 2. Some have, from those chapters and the rest of the Bible, said that the world is 6,000 years old. I'm open to the possibility that it is 6,000 years old, and God created it 6,000 years ago to look as if it was much older than that. God could do that. Another possibility is that Genesis 1 and 2, the creation accounts in Genesis 1 through 11, were written to answer some questions that we're not asking or that we don't necessarily ask. We, as post-enlightenment, science-minded people, come to those creation accounts asking two questions primarily. When was creation and how was creation? But what if the creation accounts are intended to answer two different questions? Who created and why? who created and why, rather than necessarily how and when. And if one looks at the scriptures in that way, which I think is a reasonable way to look at them, then Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 1 through 50 and the whole of scripture make a whole lot more sense. That's one way of answering that question, which I think is a really good question and young people and older people think about and wrestle with. Do I have a favorite dinosaur? No, I don't. They just be, it looks so big and mean and awful. Uh, next question, did Jesus have to be taught how to read and, or how to do math, or did he just know these, question, these things intrinsically? <laughs> Interesting question, kind of fun, because I needed a little bit of levity up front. Good question. I don't know the answer. The Bible doesn't concern itself with such things. The gospel writers, the New Testament writers, don't concern themselves with such things. So I don't know. But if I had to guess, I would say that relinquishing some of the rights of divinity, which is what we read about Jesus in Paul's letter to the Philippians, where Paul wrote, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Taking passages like that into consideration, I would go out on a limb and say, one, that Jesus did have to learn how to read and do math just like all of the other students in his class, and two, that Jesus got straight A's. In a timeline, what is the sequence for the uh, end of time, the rapture of the church, the rise of the Antichrist, the millennial kingdom, the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the new creation, etc.? And this is a good question. It's a question which some Christians have uh, put significant interest and some Christians have absolutely no interest at all. Some Christians obsess almost about this and some want nothing to do with it. Many Christians, I think, think and believe that they will live their lives to the end of their earthly, physical, body, bodily lives just as they have, and that they will expire long before any of this happens, and so it's not really relevant. For those who are interested in what the scriptures say, I'm going to offer a timeline. But again, many Christians are going to have different views about these things because many of these things this person asks about are rather cryptic in the scriptures or 
there's not a whole lot of information or they're written about a bit in the Old Testament, a bit in the New Testament, a bit here, a bit there, a bit by that author, a bit by that author, and are hard to coalesce necessarily into one clean timeline, which is the reason that a lot of Presbyterians sidestep some of these things and talk instead about hope, instead about confidence, instead about uh, big picture items. But here we go. The rapture of the church may be the first of the things in this, uh, in this list, but the word rapture doesn't even occur in English translations of the Bible. It comes from a Latin word. The reference is to one place or one verse in the book of 1 Thessalonians and maybe one reference from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, what the Left Behind series has filled in is far more than what is in the scriptures. So the rapture of the church, the rise of the Antichrist, again, a little bit of Daniel, a little bit of Revelation, which are apocalyptic literature. The tribulation, a seven-year period of God's judgment, again, a little bit in Revelation, a tiny bit in 2 Corinthians. The battle of Gog and Magog, the abomination of desolation, which we read about in Mark's gospel, the only reference to which otherwise in the scriptures is way back in the book of Daniel, which was cryptic there. The battle of Armageddon, the judgment of the nations, the binding of Satan, the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign. And again, just sidebar, some people really get fixated on, this, on the thousand years as if it's a literal thousand years, whereas the scriptures also say that a thousand years to God is just like a day. So how literally to take this reference in Revelation 20 in particular is, is up for debate. Uh, the book of Revelation also refers to 144,000 saved people. We know that number has been exceeded. So does the Jehovah's Witness organization. Uh, once that number uh, was exceeded of members of the Jehovah's Witness kingdom halls, they changed their entire theology. So a little bit, uh, a little bit of hard things to sort of discern. Some Presbyterians are premillennials. Some are post-millennialists, some are amillennialists who just don't really know. So the millennial kingdom, the last battle, the great white throne of judgment, and then what may be called the new, uh, the new creation or a new heaven and a new earth in the last two chapters of the book of the Bible, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. There's an attempt at an order. We Presbyterians don't spend a lot of time on this, but instead focus on the here and now, and the confidence that we have in the resurrection of Jesus and that he is coming again and that he will come victorious and that we can put our full faith in that reality even as we don't know the times and dates. Jesus himself said four weeks ago when we were in Mark's gospel, we saw Jesus saying uh, that you can't, we can't, the church can't expedite his coming. We don't have any control over that, and we can't affect that. Three weeks ago in Mark's gospel, again in chapter 13, we saw Jesus saying, not even the Son of Man knows the date and time of his return. And if Jesus doesn't know, we should be very careful investing too much time in trying to figure that out as well, but instead to live in hope. As Christians, what should be my perspective toward the LBGTQ plus community? As some people say that the same gender, that same gender love is a sin. As a Christian, what should be my perspective toward the LBGT community 
as some people say that same-gender love is a sin. It was going to be really easy to delete this one or jump over it or pretend that it wasn't a question. But it's really one of the most frequently asked questions in the church and in the world today for Christians. And there's a wide variety and spectrum of understandings and beliefs and wants about this. Even in this congregation. My hope is that we are all open to not wanting the scriptures to affirm what we already believe and what we want to be true about this matter. But we are open to the fullness of what the scriptures actually say about this and these sorts of things, which frankly is not much in the big scheme of things. The scriptures mention thousands and thousands of times things about giving and economic justice and uh, the sharing of our resources, only a handful of times about these particular sorts of things. The Bible doesn't talk about at all some of these things at all. Jesus uh, talks about, uh, has a very traditional view of marriage, and not only that, has a very high bar for marriage has no tolerance or little tolerance for uh, divorce and no tolerance for remarriage under most circumstances. And yet those are things that we've found other ways to understand and manage. So if we want to talk about this, it's important that we be fair with all of Scripture. Uh, are some of these things sin? Some people want to know, and some people want to hear a very clear yes and a resounding yes, and some of us want to hear a very clear and resounding no or ambiguity. I'm going to rewind and say what is our, what is our obligation or our uh, encouragement to think. It goes back to Jesus' big picture stuff. What's most important of all of the laws? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, the people who are hardest to love are your neighbor. Those are your neighbors, Jesus said. And so I think our first obligation isn't to judge or throw stones. Jesus gave people an opportunity to do that and said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And the teachers of the law and the experts in the law and the religious leaders walked away. Our first obligation and commitment and joy is to love people and not to judge people. Having said that, I'm aware that God calls us to discern. I'm aware uh, that there are uh, places in the scripture that reference homosexual activity. In the book of Leviticus, in a different context, uh, in the book of Romans, in chapter one, to some degree, midway through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, where in Corinth, uh, homosexual male prostitution was common. And so a little bit of a different context. So I think it's important that if one really wants the answers to these questions, that one uh, really wants to know what the scriptures say, that it's important to take a fair and longer look at the scriptures and understand what is sin, and we all have sinned. Let's take a survey right now. <laughs> if you haven't sinned, raise no. Paul's really clear, the scriptures are really clear, Jesus is really clear, no one's good but God alone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't excuse 
different sorts of behavior or lifestyle or choices. But we know that these things are complex. I would say to the person who asked this question, as a Christian, what should be my perspective toward the LBGT community? As some people say that same, same gender love is sin. I think our first perspective toward them is to love them and to wonder how we can love them and to acknowledge God's love for them and then, and then begin to work out some of the other things differently. We'll talk more about this when we have opportunity for conversation at 11, um, and I hope that if this is an interest of yours, and uh, it can't not be an interest for most of us in today's world, that you'll join us for more conversation. To lighten things up a bit, why does Shannon culturally embrace the Easter Bunny and yet culturally reject Santa Claus? <laughs> and then this person adds uh, their own statement of faith, no, in addition to a question. In my humble opinion, Santa provides a greater amount of joy. Okay. First of all, some parents of children uh, don't want me talking about these things openly and candidly at all around their children, so I'm going to try to do so with a little bit of discretion here this morning and knowing that most of the smaller children are gone. Uh, to that end, I'll say that I don't embrace the Easter Bunny any more than I embrace Santa or Frosty or Cupid or the Grim Reaper or leprechauns or whatnot. That's my position. The person's question, no doubt, comes from some things we talked about last week and some things I said last week during my sermon on Easter about the Easter Bunny and the Easter Bunny not rising from the dead, which he didn't, and about how much I enjoyed hunting for Easter eggs as a kid and hiding Easter eggs for my kids now, which I did and which I do, but that's not an affirmation of necessarily a theology of the Easter Bunny. I mentioned last week that Easter bunnies and eggs, how does that work? Uh, e bunnies aren't mammals. Why isn't the Easter bunny a chicken instead or a duck? I don't know. We kind of got a laugh out of that. Historically, I would actually lean towards Santa Claus because he, there is a very obscure historical connection to a man named Nicholas who was a bishop in Asia Minor back in the 3rd and into the 4th century who we don't have any of his original writings and the historical line is cloudy at best but he seems to be a person who loved the poor and who loved children. And that's the kind of the farthest back history of a Nicholas. In contrast to the Easter Bunny, who at best in the 1600s seems to maybe have come out of pagan, uh, pagan traditions that have to do with fertility. Uh, so I'm leaning towards Santa Claus if I need to lean one way or the other. That's my theology of the Easter Bunny. How can a Christian overcome anxiety and depression if someone we care about is struggling with this? What are suggestions of how we can support them on their journey? And this is a great question also and an important question. I need to say at the beginning, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional, I have no expertise or credentials, so I reply to this question or try to respond to it for us with uh, some hesitation. But uh, would begin by encouraging anyone who's in this place to connect immediately or quickly with their primary care physician or an emergency room or, if necessary, a 24-hour help hotline. Beyond these things, I would say several things. First, anxiety and depression are different as I understand them. They coexist sometimes, but they're different, and the differences should probably be acknowledged. Second, both anxiety and depression can come in mild forms or extreme forms. Both should be taken seriously, but especially the latter. 
Third, anxiety and depression are not just moods or passing feelings, and especially depression. These are physical and physiological, and in some cases, chemical and psychiatric conditions, which can be diagnosed and therefore are not to be taken lightly or cavalierly. What a person who is experiencing anxiety or depression themselves can do, I might say, would be to pray. In the latter part of uh, Peter's first letter, he says, cast all your anxiety on God because God cares for you, because God cares for us. Pray. Second, both anxiety and, uh, or second, rather, seek help immediately or as soon as possible from a healthcare uh, professional. Uh, Third, talk as openly as one can about what is going on and what one is going through. Talk about that with others and especially with people one can trust and that you know care. Several weeks ago, someone in the congregation uh, who had and has been and has a history of uh, depression said in a particular context uh, that some of us were in to another person and for everyone who was listening uh, that the most helpful thing that person had done or experienced uh, in dealing with that person's depression was to talk about it and to share with someone else who was going through the same thing to someone else who was going through depression. There's value and even healing in that. Uh, just this week, I was in a gathering with some First Pres folks, and someone shared that that person had been experiencing some depression just in the last couple of months, uh, and that was unusual for that person. I think it's really healthy to put that on the table and to not live alone in such a circumstance really important to get that out and to share that with other people. I would say also to connect with a good counselor. The scriptures, especially the books of the book of Proverbs, talk about the value and importance of having good counselors in one's life. Uh, we would encourage people to find Christ-centered counselors, not only Christ-centered counselors, but uh, any counselor. But if one can find a Christ-centered counselor, I would encourage that. I'll give a little plug for the Christian Counseling Centers of the Bay Area, uh, one of their centers is over in the Bridgepoint area, and they are easy to schedule with. Uh, they take insurance. They have sliding scale fees, and we have some funds set aside here in the congregation for people for whom counseling would be really helpful, that we would be glad to help pay for that if there is a need. Beyond that, for someone who has a friend or a close loved one or someone you know who is struggling with uh, anxiety or depression, again, some of the same things. Pray for them and pray with them. Encourage them and, uh, to get help from a medical professional. Help them to connect with a counselor. Be interested in that person. Love them and listen to them. Learn about anxiety and depression oneself. Love that person unconditionally. It's our first value. Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to love all people unconditionally. I think it's important that we work to destigmatize anxiety and depression, especially in the church. All kinds of people experience lots of different forms and degrees of anxiety and depression, and those experiences are not indicators of weakness or inferiority or lack of blessing from God. They are not indicators that one does not have value or is not loved. Quite the opposite. In the scriptures, a number of people experienced what may have been classified today as anxiety or depression. King David, 
who more than once found himself deeply troubled and in despair, the prophet Elijah, who was described at times as discouraged, weary, and afraid, and who said in the book of 1 Kings, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Jonah, who was angry and wanted to run away and once said, now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than live. There's Job, who experienced devastating loss in his life. There's the prophet Jeremiah, who wrestled with great feelings of loneliness, defeat, and insecurity. And he actually said, cursed be the day on which I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow to the end of my days? Heart. The Bible is a very human book about very human people. Pray. Seek professional help. Find a counselor. Find people who will care for you and love you and walk with you and understand. And sometimes that is people who have gone through or are going through similar sorts of things. Next, how can I overcome a temptation and be delivered from sin that has held me captive for years? And when I read this question, I uh, felt some of the weight that maybe you feel and that maybe someone is alone in that. And I would begin by saying, you're not alone, whoever you are, whether you're here or online or not here, you are not alone. I think if I was to do a survey and we were all going to be really honest, close our eyes, like in elementary school, and raise our hands and say, uh, could this describe you in some way? Might this have described you at some point in your life? A lot of hands would go up. Maybe most of our hands would go up. And so I would say to start, you're not alone in maybe having felt or being feeling like one is a captive to sin for long periods of time. That probably is not as rare as you think, and you are not alone. If you are suffering from it, so is someone else. If you are in bondage to something, so is someone else. So are other people. Uh, and maybe that bondage, I don't know what the person was talking about, but there are all sorts of things from greed to pride to uh, loving gossip to anger. There are all sorts of addictions beyond caffeine and nicotine and alcohol. People are addicted to shopping. They're addicted to their phones. They're addicted to all manner of things. I read this week that some people are literally addicted to cosmetic surgery. I didn't know that, but that's a thing. People are addicted to drugs. People are addicted to porn. People are addicted to sugar. People are addicted to shopping. Really. So, don't, I don't know what a person's, this person's thing was, but it's important to know that that person is not alone. I would say that hope is possible. If I was to say, uh, has anyone had a miraculous experience of freedom from a particular sin in this room right now? I know at least one person who would stand up and start screaming, me, 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 and she might. It does happen. God does miraculously heal people and cure people on the spot in an instant permanently from some of these sorts of things. But that's probably not the normal way things happen. We've been talking, some of us, about starting a, a Celebrate Recovery ministry uh, here at the church. And if that might be of something that's interest 
that might be of interest to you. I encourage you to reach out, let us know, and that uh, recovery can be from any number of things. But a great kind of national ministry or global ministry that's been going on for a while now called Celebrate Recovery. Some of you have uh, found help in and through Alcoholics Anonymous or through other 12-step programs. I think it's so good and founded by two Christians on somewhat biblical principles that I'm going to read those 12 steps now. Some of you know them by heart. For others, they may be new. Uh, Hear these themes. First, we admitted that we were powerless over, in this case, alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Admitting, confession. Second, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe that God was present and could help. Third, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Fourth, we made a searching and fearless inventory, moral inventory of ourselves. That takes courage. Fifth, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, at least one, the exact nature of our wrongs. Sixth, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, we humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Number 10, continued to take a personal inventory. It's an ongoing thing. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Number 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to approve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power, or the Christian might say, the grace to carry that out. And number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics or to other sinners and to practice these principles in all our affairs. That's good stuff. That's rich stuff whether you've ever tasted alcohol or not. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, God will always also provide some way out so that you can endure it. And so I think part of the message is that God loves you in your sin, in your addiction, in whatever you're in right now and desires to see healing in your life. God cares. There is a way out. There is hope. Next question, and I'm checking on time. Maybe do one or two. Uh, Actually, I'm going to switch over to uh, switch over to some questions from this morning. On the fly, here we go. And I'm reading these for the first time. Oh, I read this one last night. Why is putting a pet down at the end of their life considered merciful, but when it comes to humans, those who are in great pain at their end of life, it is considered wrong? It's a very thoughtful question and one that's probably pretty hotly debated among people today. Uh, End-of-life questions. Why is putting a pet down at their end of life considered merciful, but when it comes to humans, those who are in great pain at the end of their life, is it considered wrong? Five or six years ago, seven years ago, 
our beloved German shepherd at age 12, Callie, had cancer, suffered hard into her life. And we put her down. We allowed her to be put down. I took her to the vet one night to the emergency hospital when she couldn't go on any longer. That's hard. Many of us have done that. That's hard. But it was merciful. It seemed like the only route forward that made sense, as painful as it was, as sad as it was. Two and a half years ago, my stepfather passed away. After 11, 12 years of vascular dementia and lying in a bed and the last couple of years not being able to communicate. Was there a difference? There was a difference. One was made in the image of God and somehow bore God's image. The other wasn't. The other was a dog, a beloved pet, and a member of our family. I think some of the differences are about communication. Some are about history with that person or dog. Some are about relationships. Does a human being have more of God in them than a dog? Yeah, the scriptures say that human beings and only human beings are made in God's image, have God's imprint and God's presence and God's spirit in them. Do we already intervene in end-of-life things by sustaining people on life support? We do, and that's become pretty common. And most of us have directives about what we want and don't want. It's a different, it feels like a different side of that coin to expedite the end of one's life. And we understand how that can seem merciful. I think there are questions about the legality and about uh, how, much of a, how much prerogative a person in such a condition has, how clear-minded a person has. There are significant ethical and legal issues at hand. I'm not sure how to answer that, uh, except going back to some big picture things. Our call is to love people. Our call is to trust God. When Peter, my stepdad, could no longer communicate and his breathing became difficult, the presence of God was still in him. And morphine is grace. Christians have the reputation of being intolerant and judgmental. How do you personally try to counter this? First, I would have to agree, many Christians do have the reputation of being intolerant and judgmental. How do you try to counter this? By being less judgmental and a little more, a little more tolerant. Jesus is, paradoxically, I go back to, incredibly inclusive and incredibly exclusive. He is inclusive with regard to people, or he seems to be in the Gospels. He is exclusive with regard to the way to the Father. He says in no uncertain terms of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is one path. He's pretty exclusive about that, but he's pretty inclusive about people uh, and who is worthy and who is loved and who is invited. And so I, for me, that's a, that's a good dialectic and a good balance 
Um, I'm a person who's always inclined to be more critical, more judgmental, more analytical, and being aware of that is helpful. I've also come to understand and, and practice knowing people personally before throwing stones at them. And I'm not great at it, but it changes a lot when we have someone to our table, when we share a meal with someone, when we're willing to listen, when we know someone, even as a friend, rather than just as an enemy. Love your neighbors. In Luke 6.37, here's a Bible scholar. In Luke 6.37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Is the judgment, condemnation, and forgiveness Jesus talks about here from God or from humans? Good question. I've always thought of it as from God. Uh, Jesus does a lot of this reciprocal stuff in his teaching. In this case, I've, I've always thought of it, but I'll rethink it and think more about it. But I've always thought that he's talking about God. If we forgive others, God will forgive us. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're, taught, we're asking God to forgive us as we pledge to forgive others? Great question. Jesus' teachings on hell seem to be rarely preached by modern pastors. Does God expect this unpopular topic to be included in the proclamation of the gospel? That's a different question. Um, Jesus' teaching on hell seems to be rarely preached by modern pastors. I think that's probably true, especially in Presbyterian churches and in a lot of mainline churches and maybe most churches. There are other, some other churches, though, and some preachers who probably love to preach on hell. And one can understand why, uh, because it lights a fire under people, literally. When Jesus talks about hell, he uses three different words, or when the Scriptures do. In the Old Testament, a word Sheol, Hebrew, that just means the place of the dead, not so much hell. Uh, in the New Testament, once or twice, the word Hades is used, which it doesn't have real clear imagery. Then the, the third and most common uh, word used for hell in the New Testament in Greek is Gehenna, which was also the name of a valley just outside of Jerusalem where people threw their trash and where uh, their trash, the city's trash, was burned. Hence, some of the imagery that we get of burning with hell. I happen to think with C.S. Lewis that hell is going to be a, a cold place rather than a hot place, being from South Texas. <laughs> That's a little bit of a different story. Uh, I think that hell being, the, uh, being distanced from God is a reality and is a part of the message of the gospel and that it's a part of the bad news from which we're saved, from which a person is delivered or saved uh, and rescued, all the same word uh, and the same ideas. So yes, uh, it is a part of the story. Uh, hell can be uh, probably more of our imagery from about hell and the things we think about hell come from Dante rather than the scriptures, in all honesty. Um, but uh, I think that, yeah, I think 
Hell needs to be a part of the message. Understanding hell or the things from which we get the imagery of hell in the scriptures. Uh, is FPCSM responsible for reaching San Mateo with the gospel? In which neighborhood should we start? How do we track progress? Nah, it's kind of an insider strategy question, but sure, yes, we're called to be light and salt and seasoning and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, in which neighborhood? Any and every neighborhood. How do we track progress? People falling in love with Jesus, people wanting to follow Jesus, people talking about Jesus, a transformation eventually of society and systems and institutions and businesses and schools. We can track progress by people loving one another and forgiving one another and being generous with one another, by justice being done, by the poor kids being fed. A couple of ideas. Two more real quick. We'll see what are, what are here. How can a Christian overcome a habitual sin? I think I've kind of talked about that. I'm going to jump to the last one. If Mary chose better than Martha, should we all strive to be more like Mary rather than Martha and rest in God rather than always busy ourselves? So the book club, which meets in 11 days, <laughs> is uh, reading together a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. It's a really great book, and many of us, maybe most of us, don't spend enough time resting and listening and being attentive to the Lord. Not all of us, but we have different uh, compulsions and different dysfunctions. Uh, I kind of think that both have value. The work needs to get done. The work needs to get done. The ministry needs to happen. But we should also find, and many of us fail in this regard, time to slow down, time to rest, time to stop. The word Sabbath means stop and to cease and to listen and to worship and to recover and to sleep. Yeah, that's good. All right, I've gone long. I've got a few more questions, uh, a bunch more actually, um, kind of a second tier of questions that were submitted, um, but um, we'll save those for afterwards for those who are interested in going a little bit deeper or dialoguing or pushing back. You're welcome to push back at 11 in the lighthouse on any of these things or plumb a little bit deeper. I hope uh, this time of exploring and thinking out loud about some of these questions has been helpful. We're gonna pray. for um, just being willing to vocalize a lot of tough questions that we all carry. Let's pray. Lord, first, we want to thank you for the fact that we have a pastor who is filled with wisdom, and it's not his own wisdom, it's yours, and he has it because he connects to you, because he wants to be rooted in you and have your spirit flowing through him. So we thank you that you have provided for us a pastor who is filled with your wisdom. And we know that you have told us that you will give wisdom to all who ask. So I pray that we will come back to you time and time again and 
humbly pray for your wisdom to fill us up, to fill us up with your truth, truth that will lead to life, abundant, good life, that will battle the bath of lies that our world wants to fill us with. You hold the truth. You hold the life. Where else are we going to go? So I pray that we will continue to come back to you over and over again with our struggles, with our hard questions, knowing and believing that you can hold all of those difficult things, that you can hold those hard questions, the ones that don't have easy answers, the ones that cause us such anguish and torment. Lord, you are okay with us coming to you with giant question marks and struggles. So we thank you for your faithfulness, and I pray that we will trust you. And I pray that we will find this place, this, this community, one in which we can be real, where we can confess our sins, we can confess our struggles, we can confess our challenges, our mental health struggles, our, our temptations. Lord, I pray that this will be a safe place, that we will be safe for one another. Lord, may we be your physical representation here because you are safe, you are good. May we strive to be safe and good and encouraging for one another. We continue to just lift up this time. We want to worship you. We want to connect with you. We want to be rooted in you. Amen.